everybody, and welcome to the December 2nd uh, Global News Review. I'm Patrick Ryan, President of the Tennessee World Affairs Council. I'm joined by Ambassador Dick Bowers and Dr. Breck Walker. And today we have a special guest, Ambassador John Kornblum. It's uh, great to be with you all today. Um, we are going to uh, skip our customary uh, kickoff of having a, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, a weekly quiz and, and a few other administrative things and, and get right into our program today. We have a lot to talk about. But first, I just want to introduce our guests. You can check uh, their complete bios on our website, tnwac.org. But let me just give you some basic uh, information. Uh, Ambassador John Kornblum has a long record of service in the United States and Europe, both as a diplomat and as a businessman. He is recognized as an eminent expert on US-European political and economic relations, in particular in Central and Eastern Europe. He served as the US ambassador to Germany from 1997 to 2001. Before that, he occupied a number of high level diplomatic posts, including US Assistant Secretary of State for European Affairs, Special Envoy for the Dayton Peace Process, US Ambassador to the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, Deputy US Ambassador for NATO, and US Minister and Deputy Commandant of Forces in Divided Berlin. Breck Walker received his PhD in diplomatic history from Vanderbilt in 2007. His dissertation was on the foreign policy of the Carter administration. He taught at Sewanee at the University of the South and on the University of Virginia's Semester at Sea program in spring 2013 and fall 2015. He worked as a historian in the historical office of the Office of Secretary of Defense, researching and writing a book on early Pentagon cyber policy. Prior to becoming a history professor, Breck worked for 20 years as an investment banker. Uh, Dick Bowers uh, served as the U.S. ambassador to Bolivia from 1991 through 1994. During that time, the American embassy in Bolivia's capital, La Paz, was the largest and most complex embassy in the U.S. Embassy in South America. Ambassador Bowers grew up in San Francisco, attended the University of California, Berkeley, Go Bears. He entered the U.S. Foreign Service in 1967. Uh, from 1961 to 1964, he served in the U.S. Army as a Russian linguist in West Berlin at the height of the Cold War. As a career member of the U.S. Diplomatic Corps, Ambassador Bowers has served in the U.S. Embassies in Panama, Poland, Singapore, Germany, and Bolivia. He retired from the U.S. Foreign Service in 1995. Ambassador Bowers has been a board member of the Tennessee World Affairs Council since 2012. And my background is uh, as a sailor. I did 26 years in the Navy, submarines, uh, driving the surface ship for a little while, and then intelligence. So uh, like Breck, I've had a few semesters at sea. Um, after that, I uh, started publishing newsletters on Middle East affairs somewhere along the way, helped start the World Affairs Council and now serve as its president. Gentlemen, uh, welcome and thank you for joining us today to talk about uh, our issue uh, 2021, uh, what's the path ahead for the, uh, the Biden administration and US foreign policy. Uh, this is uh, part one, this will be a two part program. We're gonna talk about uh, the, the topic uh, in some different landscapes uh, next week and uh, we'll, we'll jump in here today. Uh, so thanks uh, for being with us. Everybody have a good Thanksgiving. Yeah, did, certainly. Thank you. Sure did. Thanks. Okay. Well, let's uh, let's get with the program here. 
the Biden-Harris transition website lists President-elect Biden's priorities as COVID-19, economic recovery, racial equity, and climate change. However, the rest of the world has not hit the pause button, and Biden and his team will need to be ready on day one to engage the world. What we will do for the next 45 minutes is to share the insights and perspectives gained from about a century of uh, professional work in diplomacy, national security, and scholarship to provide a framework to understand the near-term approach and challenges for the incoming President Joe Biden administration. There are no crystal balls to apply to the emerging issues, but there are plenty of data points and trend lines to consider, and there are no shortage of press reporting and think tank opining to put on the table. Uh, we'll open with uh, remarks from uh, Ambassador John Kornblum. Uh, Ambassador, your recent profile of Tony Blinken, uh, President-elect Biden's choice for Secretary of State, uh, characterized him as a dedicated Atlanticist. Uh, can you start us off with a discussion of the foreign policy and national security team with your insights on Blinken's potential in his new post? Uh, after all, you've known him for, I believe, uh, uh, in the article, it was about 20 years, and he worked for you in the uh, European Bureau at State. So if you could uh, set the scene for us on the, some of the personalities that we can expect to see. Yeah, thank you, Patrick. I'd be very happy to give a little bit of what I know. I do know Tony quite well. Uh, I worked with him in particular in the late 90s when I was in the, the Assistant Secretary of State and then later in Baud. He was the head of Europe at the NSC, which was National Security Council, which was a very important job. And then he spent, um, I think, six years, all told, if my arithmetic is right, being uh, Joe Biden's chief of staff, both in the uh, Senate and then also when Biden was vice president. So he, he is characteristic of, I think, m most of the people who have been appointed for foreign policy and security uh, jobs. And that is that Biden knows him very well. And he knows also uh, the others quite well. Uh, and uh, it seems to me that what he's done is put together a very professional foreign policy staff, which is, um, if I may say so, not necessarily always the case. Uh, the Secretary of State in particular tends to come from outside the professional government, tends to be a, a lawyer or a business person or in a, last year we've had two female lady secretaries of state who were both professors. But it's, it's, it's fairly rare that it's somebody who really knows uh, what what diplomacy is all about. That's not necessarily a bad thing because, because uh, the Secretary of State has several thousand people working for him who's supposed to tell him what diplomacy is all about. And the real test of a Secretary of State is whether he or she can conceive and sell the policies of the president. And uh, that's why you know, Barack Obama had, had two senators as a Secretary of State, uh, Hillary Clinton and uh, John Kerry. Uh, and so it's, it's a difficult mix sometimes, but I think that what uh, Biden has done is put together a very professional crew, probably on the assumption that the other issues, which you mentioned, Patrick, in your uh, introduction, are going to be really overwhelming him. COVID, for example, immigration, for example, uh, the economic situation, for example, 
et cetera, et cetera, and that he really wants people he can trust doing foreign policy. So I think it's a very good team. Uh, 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 Sullivan is a little bit untested. He's a little bit uh, new in this business, at least for his age. He's the youngest NSC advisor for 50 years, something like that. But he has a very good reputation and he has done some very important diplomatic tasks when he was working also for Secretary of State Hillary Clinton. So I think he's going to be fine. But there is something which is sometimes called the fourth branch of government in the United States, which only uh, insiders sort of know about. And that's called the interagency process. Uh, when I was, uh, when I talk to my European friends, I often say, well, you have to realize that governing the United States is just about like governing Europe. It's not really a united group at all. And uh, the way we put things together in the government, it's not just in foreign policy, is the so-called interagency process where all the agencies come into a room and slug it out. And sometimes it really is slugging it out. This is what Jake Sullivan is gonna have to do with foreign policy and security policy. The NSC advisor also deals with the defense department. So we'll see, uh, the defense secretary hasn't been named yet. And uh, that's gonna be a very important job, but it's going to be one of the toughest entries into office and including foreign policy, I think that any president has had in the last 50 years. We, uh, we also have a couple of other uh, uh, named uh, nominees. Uh, Avril Haynes is director of national intelligence. Uh, Linda uh, Thomas Greenfield as the US ambassador to the United Nations and uh, John Kerry as the uh, envoy, special envoy for climate or the climate czar, as uh, most of the press has been referring to him. Uh, Breck, Dick, any observations uh, after the naming of the, of the Biden national security and foreign policy team? Dick? Uh, I think he's going in the right direction. I agree with John. You know, one of the most important things is that relationship between sex state and the president. And if you've got the president's ear, life gets a little easier. Um, Avril Haines, she is a fascinating woman, according to what I've been reading, and, and she got her degree in physics and then migrated to, she wanted to fly airplanes, so she flew airplanes for a while and, and then gave that up and then went on to uh, do work in the international arena and has ended up as, you know, number two in the CIA and now she will be the head of U.S. intelligence as the director of uh, intelligence. So she's first class. And then Janet Yellen coming in with all experience from the Fed. I think that's a very good appointment. Um, if you've got any extra money, I guess you need to send it to Georgia because getting some people confirmed may be a problem in this administration if the Republicans and Mitch McConnell continue to hold the Senate. So. It's going to be an interesting time for the next several months, but I'm, I'm pleased with the way Biden is starting out and the fact that he's back in the multilateral game and we're back saying we want all allies rather than you know, tell them to go to hell. So that's my quick take. Rick, any... Uh... Yeah, Pat, I would only, I would add, I would echo uh, Ambassador Kornblum's uh, comments that the watchword for Biden's appointments on the foreign policy side so far is experience. And I think uh, just from my perspective, one of the unfortunate aspects of uh, 
President Trump's secretaries of state, Tillerson and Pompeo, is that the State Department was kind of hollowed out, right? A lot of people left and uh, we lost a lot of experience. Uh, and I think that bringing uh, Tony Blinken in uh, has got to be, uh, I'm sure Biden is thinking that what we need to do first and foremost is rebuild the State Department and uh, bring uh, experienced hands and new hands in that will become experienced over time. And so I'm excited about that. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm very pleased with the appointments today. Well, Dick, uh, you, you mentioned uh, Avril Haines as the Director of National Intelligence, and, and she certainly comes well prepared for that job. She's been uh, the Deputy yeah. Director of CIA. And as you alluded to, uh, and, and we shared an article that I'm going to post uh, for our audience to take a look at when uh, they uh, browse the, uh, the replay of this on our youtube.com slash TNWAC website. We'll have a couple of links attached to the, uh, the video. Uh, one of them uh, talked about her background in, in great detail. It was a, a Newsweek article from a couple of years ago. Right. And uh, in addition to majoring in physics, she also got involved in overhauling uh, automobile engines and uh, <laughs> you know, getting her hands dirty and then rebuilt an airplane. And she and her future husband were off to fly to Europe and got as far as some island off of uh, the Canadian coast and, and uh, ran out of gas and and had an experience there. And then she got involved in running a uh, cafe and bookstore in Baltimore. Um, quite, quite a diverse uh, background before she got into government, but her experience in government has been uh, very solid. And, and I'll just uh, opine on uh, the situation in the intelligence community, which has been uh, treated rather roughly, uh, kind of an abusive relationship with the White House uh, in, in this past uh, four years. We've seen a parade of DNIs uh, that, uh, you know, we had Rich Grinnell, who had been the ambassador to Germany, who uh, ruffled some feathers over there. And, and John, you, you might uh, add something about Grinnell, but uh, he, he was put in as uh, acting DNI um, after the, the, the previous DNI was shown the door. And then the, uh, John Radcliffe, uh, was nominated to the position. He had previously been considered uh, to be the DNI, but didn't even have the support among Republicans in the Senate. Uh, so he, he got in sort of the, the hair on his chinny chin chin because Grinnell was in there in, a, in an acting spot. Um, so, you know, we've, we've seen the politicization of, uh, of intelligence. So I'd, I'm uh, hopeful that uh, DNI uh, Haynes takes a different direction and in her opening comments uh, with uh, President-elect Biden, she turned to him and, and uh, was very serious when she said, uh, you may not always like what I have to tell you, but uh, you're, you're always gonna get the unvarnished truth. So uh, that I think will uh, go far in, in the morale of the intelligence community, uh, not that they needed any morale to continue to do the job that they do, but uh, the intelligence community has uh, uh, gone down kind of a rough road over the past couple of years. And, and I know uh, uh, John and Dick in your diplomatic careers, you've probably had some connections with uh, uh, intelligence uh, officials and embassy uh, representatives and so forth. So if, if you have any comments on, on the, the change in, in that area, I'd, I'd welcome them. Uh, I can say maybe a couple of things. Um, first, I won't say anything about Grinnell. This is a family show, so I won't get into that. Um, uh, but um, 
One th point which I think is important for the future is that this job that we're talking about that Admiral Haynes is taking only was established in 2003, I think, something like that. And the reason it was established was that there was, for two reasons, I think. One, there was a great feeling that the intelligence community hadn't done very well predicting or at least analyzing what was happening uh, before 9-11. That was considered a pretty big failure by the intelligence community, rightly or wrongly, I have no way of knowing, but that was the idea. Secondly, however, I, I think this is the real story here. Even from the time, well, certainly, Patrick, from the time you were working on it, but even from the time of, of the George W. Bush administration, as government operation changed, I don't know if the right word, radically revolutionary. It's, it's a whole different story. And the addition of electronic media, but also the different issues they have to be dealing, but also the proliferation, I mean, that is a negative word, expansion of intelligence in the United States government has meant that this John, I think uh, your your picture froze up and, and your audio uh, cut out on us. So we'll we'll give you a second for your internet to settle down. I'll I'll mention uh, a couple things that you, you you brought up rightly that the uh, the DNI's position uh, is a, a relatively recent uh, concoction uh, subsequent to 9/11 it was felt that uh, the director of the Central Intelligence Agency, who was double-hatted as uh, the DNI, uh, the Director of National Intelligence, uh, needed somebody uh, to, to take over the uh, complete oversight of the 17 organizations that are in the intelligence community. So they split out the, uh, the double position of Director Central Intelligence and uh, the, the DNI, and, and that's, uh, that's when that started. John, I, I think you're back with us. Yes, I, could, I can't see you at the moment, but I, I think you can see me. Well, anyway, uh, Patrick, I was just following up on what you were saying. And um, so that means that there is a need for this job. That's what I wanted to stress. It's, it's not just a superfluous coordinator. In most organizations, the word coordinator is a kiss of death. If you're a coordinator, that means somebody shoved you in an office somewhere with nothing to do. But this time, I think, Intelligence has become so complex and the tools have become so space age almost. I mean, just think of what the NSA uh, represents in the, in, the, in, the, in the technology. That you do need somebody who is senior and who has the president's uh, ear and the president's trust to make sure that uh, if for no other reason that the intelligence agents are, are working together but more so than that, making sure that the president is getting a really balanced view of what's going on. Sure, and it's it's trust up and down uh, the chain. Uh, the organizations uh, need to have trust that the DNI has their interests uh, at heart. Exactly. Okay, well let's uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, the the ambassador of the United Nations, Linda Thomas Greenfield, and she uh, famously on on the scene and in her debut with uh, the vice president elect. Uh, said that America was back, multilateral, multilateralism was back, and that diplomacy uh, was back. And she also shared that uh, as ambassador, 
uh, she would uh, have uh, you know some some Cajun uh, nights where people would come over and they'd uh, she'd put uh, put them to work in the kitchen. Gumbo cooking, diplomacy, uh, Pat. Gumbo, gumbo diplomacy. diplomacy. Uh, John, did, did you and uh, you or Dick uh, engage in any sort of kitchen uh, kitchen shenanigans with uh, the uh, international corps on on the postings? Yeah, I did. Is that, some, is that something they would do in Germany, John? Well, not so much, actually. You know, I mean, you got to look far and wide to find anything exciting about German food. <laughs> and uh, that means, I mean, really far. And yeah. uh, that means that their tastes are not terribly... Uh, the biggest thing that every embassy has, and Dick probably remembers this too, is the uh, 4th of July party where you can have hot dogs and hamburgers and things. That's about the most exotic thing we ever had. And... Uh, we had in, in Taiwan, when we were still in Bonn, I was two years in Bonn and two years in Berlin as ambassador. We actually had a portable McDonald's and uh, that was the biggest hit. We didn't have to have any other uh, delicacies, that was it. But which caused my sons who were at that time teenagers to say, well, we're the only people in the world with a McDonald's in our backyard, which was true. Uh, and so no, no, nothing, um, Terribly exciting going on in Germany. Dick, did did you have any improvisation? Yeah, in Bolivia? Bolivia is a little less little less formal than uh, than Germany, and I had I think one of the most important things an ambassador can do is to establish personal relationships with the movers and shakers in that particular society and the political leaders are there. Um, I invited across the board from far left to far right, although Evo Morales was not one of the guys who came. But uh, we had an evening one, one time when I served all Bolivian food. So this was you know, various types of potato. They were just blown away the fact that an American ambassador would serve Bolivian food to everybody, including little guinea pigs and things of that sort. But those relationships were really uh, critical to getting the job done, in, in my opinion. And on the last day of uh, president of Bolivia, who was voted out of office by a guy named Gonzalo Sanchez de Rosada, who later was thrown out of office. But he came with two or three of his closest friends last night in office, and we had a very intimate dinner. I think we killed two bottles of scotch, among other things. And it was just kind of a very interesting evening. So the Bolivians were very approachable. And John is absolutely right, 4th of July, is a critical kind of event. And we've done, we had a, a dispensation from Disneyland. So we had Mickey Mouse walking around the crowd one time and everybody wanted their picture taken with Mickey Mouse. So fun stuff. Okay. Well, let's, uh, let's just button this, uh, this part up with mention that uh, former Secretary of State and former Senator John Kerry was among those uh, brought out with uh, Biden in the uh, National Security Group debut and we're going to talk about climate in our section next week but uh, any thoughts on uh, someone with the gravitas of uh, secretary former secretary Kerry taking uh, taking that that job uh, John I can say a little bit I know him too pretty well he's, he's a good person he was I think he was a very good secretary of state I think what that appointment suggests is that Biden understands that Right now, the climate portfolio is essentially a relationship building portfolio. 
it's not just the Trump administration, but every American administration really, leave aside Obama, maybe he was a bit more positive, but essentially um, over the last 20 years, the American administrations have given the impression that we didn't care much about climate. Uh, we were in fact much less uh, politically oriented towards it than the Europeans were or the Southeast Asians or whoever. And so I think that, and then you had Trump come who sort of, you know, left the Paris Agreement and everything. So I think the climate job right now is not so much coming up with brilliant new solutions, but rather just putting the Humpty Dumpty back together again, so to speak. And that's what John Kerry can do probably as well as anybody on earth. He's very dedicated to climate things. Uh, he's, uh, he knows what it's all about, but also he's just a very uh, empathetic and persuasive person. And I think any, you know, how should I put this? He looks like a European. So uh, he is in fact a European. His family comes from Austria. Uh, and so uh, he will be uh, very welcome in uh, Europe and in also in Southeast Asia, China, I'm not sure about, but that's not part of our subject today. So you, but, but I think it's a very smart appointment to have somebody there. Now, uh, I'll just add one criticism here since we don't want to be only positive. There was something in the press yesterday which said that Biden was also thinking of appointing somebody similar to um, uh, Kerry to be coordinator for Asia. And that's like saying, well, I'm going to get somebody a coordinator for the world. I mean, uh, that's actually what the Secretary of State is supposed to be the coordinator for Asia. So I think they're taking this a little bit too far. And this is the danger of having, we were just talking about how good it is to have professionals, but sometimes professionals can be too professional. They can think in bureaucratic terms rather than in uh, visionary terms. And the United States government doesn't need a coordinator for Europe. It needs somebody who knows how to deal with China, Japan, Indonesia, Thailand. But a, coord I mean, a coordinator for Asia is just not really gonna be very useful. And I would predict that if they do name one, the person won't really have very much to do. Well, let me, uh, before we uh, close this section <clears throat> and move on, uh, we have a question from Eleanor. Uh, she asks, if Biden rejoins the Paris Climate Agreement, which he says that he uh, intends to do, uh, how significant do you think it would be for American reputation and American-European relations? Uh, would there be visible effects uh, from re-entering beyond a symbolic union? Anybody? Um... Uh, I can, uh, well, first, it would be very important. That's sort of the, what the import of what I was saying, that the climate portfolio right now is really a diplomatic portfolio, rebuilding relationships that have been torn apart over the past four years or maybe even longer. So I think that it would have a lot of significance. But US-European relations are going to be much more difficult. This is another subject we can go into maybe uh, than simply the Paris Agreement. There are wide areas of disagreement which have very little to do with Donald Trump. That's my basic point. They have to do with wide areas of disagreement between the United States and Europe. Yeah. Well, perfect segue. We're uh... The climate into... change thing, Pat, is a, it's a worldwide problem. So it's not just a European-U.S. Sure. relationships right. problem. Exactly. And, and I think, if I remember my math correctly, the U.S. <laughs> has about 13% of the, the global emissions in carbon. So, you know, you've got 87% of the rest of the world producing those things. And it, we have to get 
a worldwide solution to a worldwide problem because the borders of the United States, no matter how build, how high you build a wall, aren't going to keep carbon and climate change out. So. Well, uh, well said. I'm glad you uh, made that point. Thanks, Dick. Well, hey, uh, go ahead, Brett. I was just going to add one thing real quickly that on some of these big issues like uh, climate and uh, uh, relations with Europe, but probably everything we're going to talk about today. Uh, I think one of the challenges, and maybe this is obvious, one of the challenges the Biden administration is going to face uh, in deploying this diplomatic effort is the fact that the Trump administration was not soundly defeated and they're waiting in the wings. And I'm sure there's a lot of uncertainty throughout the world. Was that an aberration or uh, is that a political grouping that could come back into power in four more years? So that's a, that's a drag on all of Biden's diplomatic efforts, I suspect, and going to be a real challenge for him to overcome. I think the easy way to take that brick is, you know, you know Biden's been and his people are talking about America's back. Right. You know, America's back. We're back in the game. But the reality is the trust that we used to have with the Europeans has been damaged severely. And right. that it will not come back 100%. So it's going to take a lot of work on our part to try to rebuild those bridges that we had before. Yeah, it's not just the Europeans. And we're going to uh, hopefully get down our list of things to do today and, and get into Iran. But uh, clearly, the, uh, the Iranian regime is concerned that if they do uh, get back into an arrangement on nuclear issues with the U.S., uh, that in four years, there'll be another administration that throws it in the trash can again. Okay, let's uh, talk about uh, our topic two, which is uh, 2021, what's in store for America and the world. And we uh, set our goal today to talk about U.S.-EU relations, including uh, NATO, multilateralism, populism, and nationalism, and uh, then to jump into uh, the Middle East. Uh, at this point, a half hour in, I'm not optimistic we'll get uh, past uh, Istanbul, but uh, let's let's give it a try. Um, U.S.-EU uh, relations. Uh, let me put this on the table for us to uh, uh, to kick around. What will be the focus and approach of the Biden team on reengaging? Uh, Europe, uh, both uh, politically, economically, uh, as well as militarily, there's there's a lot of ground to catch up if, as uh, Ambassador Bowers says, America is back. Um, John, do you want to uh, start? Uh, well, start yeah, off? Um, first place, this is the second time that Joe Biden has said America is back. I was at a conference in Munich 12 years ago, and he was the featured speaker, and he said, we're back. So he's, uh, he's repeating what he said, but we are back again. The problem, as I alluded to before, is that being nice is not going to get him very far. It's going to be good to start. I'm much in favor of it. I've been very embarrassed by the way we've treated our European friends over the past uh, four or five years. But the issues which cause differences between us and the Europeans are ones that are, we talked about them before, they're, they're really major almost sea changes in the in the world, be it the environment, be it technology, be it uh, refugees. We haven't talked about refugees. If you wanted to look at walls, look at the European southern border. They've built much bigger walls than we would ever build. And so these are not things which are easily to, easy to deal with, not just because we and the Europeans disagree, which we don't all the time, but because our publics are very engaged in them and our publics don't necessarily agree with, with themselves. And the, the fault lines across the Atlantic are not 
don't run straight down the Atlantic. They're between different parts of America and different parts of Europe. Uh, Southern Europe is a whole different place than Northern Europe is, for example, and getting more so. The second point is that Europe has become, I'm sorry to say this, I've been living and working there for 50 years. Europe is becoming dysfunctional. The structures which were set up after 1990 don't work anymore. Multilateralism, which everybody says is their flavor of the month, doesn't really work anymore. But Europe is so still in its mold of still recovering from World War II that it's very difficult for them to take any revolutionary steps. So you have the, the, the sort of overlapping problems of issues which are hardly amenable to solution at the moment, for some of which we don't even have the vocabulary to talk about them. An American political system, which is, shall we say, in the, in the, in the, in the state of flux, and a European political system, which is even more in a state of flux. But the United States, at least, is producing all of the new technology. We have the strongest military. We have all of this. And we have, of course, a special cooperative, competitive relationship with China. And Europe doesn't fit in very much. They missed the digital uh, age. There's no major digital industry in Europe. Uh, their military is. Uh, large, they spend almost as much on defense as we do, except as some people say, it's mostly for bans. Um, they have no foreign policy as such. And so Europe is in a real mess at the moment. And uh, I, one of the reasons I'm happy with the appointments that Biden has made is because he has people who know what the world is about. And they know that uh, Europe is in difficult uh, circumstances. They know actually that China is in very difficult circumstances. We shouldn't overdo China. They're in a very difficult situation. So Biden's big problem is not going to be re restoring trust. I predict he'll win that back in six months. We had the same situation when George W. Bush was president. When he left office, America's positive quotient in the polls was 15%. A year later, when Barack Obama was there, it was 90%. We're so overwhelming. People like us when we help them. They don't like us when we don't help them. The real story is that the issues aren't amenable to treatment. They're not amenable to the kind of dis uh, diplomacy that Dick and I grew up learning, for example. It just doesn't work that way anymore. And so it's going to be very, very difficult. And uh, that's why, again, I'm in favor of everything Biden's doing, because restoring the climate is very important. I mean, the climate with Europe. Right. Uh, but then moving on to real achievements is going to be very difficult. Breck, anything uh, to add to that? I just add one thing very briefly. Um, I think that there's been uh, total agreement between Republicans and Democrats in the United States for the last 70 years prior to the Trump administration that our alliances following World War II were absolutely key to American uh, economic prosperity and national security. Uh, it was good policy to have these alliances and so much so we benefited, we Americans benefited so much so that we were very glad to take a disproportionate burden in making right. these alliances work uh, in terms of money we spent, in terms of effort we spent, in terms of troops deployed and so on and on. And then in my mind at least, the biggest change in the Trump administration's foreign policy 
is the denigration of those alliances, the decision that they weren't important, that in some sense we could go it alone and be better off. And I think over the last four years, while the Trump administration has had some diplomatic successes here and there, in a geopolitical sense, uh, I think that we have uh, had se made several steps backwards. And uh, the Biden administration, I think, is going to make a big effort, as everybody has already uh, said, a big effort to restore this sense that alliances are very important to American prosperity and national security. And I think, for me personally, that's something we all should uh, welcome. I just say one yeah. word to that. I agree 100% with that, but maybe not totally with the conclusions, because the problem is that even people who say they are in favor of close alliances, who are working with our allies, et cetera, et cetera, are, not, are, are decreasingly not willing, as what you said, Breck, to make the sacrifices to make them work. Uh, I have been in touch with uh, democratic sort of uh, activist think tank people continuously over the past 20 years. And I, there's a great drop in the willingness there to take European approaches as given because we have to do it because of Europe and because of the alliance. That used to be, again, that's the way I grew up. It's, this is fading away. And the fact is, from a, from a, a logical point of view, why should Americans 75 years after World War II be willing to make special efforts to keep the Europeans from fighting each other? Uh, I could give you a, a well-argued answer to that, whether it would be convincing is another story, but I could give you a nicely tuned briefing memo answer to that. But the fact is, it's not politically logical what, we, what we're expecting our country to do right now. And I keep making this point to Europeans continuously, and I'll give you what their answer is. They don't understand what I'm talking about. John, uh, let me ask you, ask you a question as, yeah. you know, as, a, as a consummate Europeanist. Uh, America first became America alone, and now we're going to get rid of that. And I, right. my sense is the Europeans are looking for strong American leadership. The question yeah. is, what kind of leadership is America willing to provide, and how are we going to go about doing that? Well, John, before you, before you answer that, let me uh, let me just read a, a little piece here from uh, the campaign website. Uh, he uh, he says, uh, or the campaign said, that uh, Biden would uh, look to renew American leadership to mobilize global action on global threats. And I think this uh, this paragraph here is uh, aimed at probably Europe uh, predominantly. The world does not organize itself. American leadership backed by clear goals and sound strategies is necessary to effectively address the defining global challenges of our time. In order to lead again, we must restore our credibility and influence. From day one of a Biden administration, other countries will once again have reason to trust and respect the word of an American president. So I, I just wanted to add that to the mix here, but go ahead. Well, that's wonderful. Sort of brings tears to my eyes, but um, <laughs> it doesn't get you anywhere. <laughs> That's the problem. What the Europeans want from America is a willingness to subsidize the Atlantic structure. And they also want us to accept their regulation of the internet industry because that's part of their political necessity. They want us to take the right steps on climate, which I think they're probably they're right on this. They want us to defend them uh, with, uh, with, with, when they have no ability and actually no interest in defending them. 
I sometimes lose patience a little bit with the Germans when they say, well, you don't count our entire defense budget. Our emergency storm relief is part of the defense budget also. And I say, no, it's not. That's not the defense budget. And so uh, there are some basic problems which have to do with the change in psychology in both the United States and in Europe. The United States is not going to be willing to bear a lot of these burdens that uh, Biden says he's going to. But the Europeans are also not in the mentality to, uh, to accept American dominance the way it has been. There is a phrase, I'll close with one phrase, that is very strong in Europe right now. And that is, we Europeans need digital sovereignty. And what that means is they don't want to be dominated by uh, Amazon, Facebook, Google, Apple anymore. But guess what? They are going to be dominated by Apple, Facebook and, uh, for, for the foreseeable future. Google has a much bigger market penetration in Europe, Europe than it does in the United States. And uh, there's no replacing it. They've tried to set up European Googles and European Amazons with no success. So that's the underlying problem. I'm not trying to be critical of anybody, but we should be understand that underneath all this new friendship, which I totally share, there's going to be a lot, a lot of uh, debate over issues which are very hard to solve. Sure. And I've, I've learned I'm going to need to sharpen my game when you're on the, uh, the panel here. Uh, but let, uh, let me uh, add one, one more. You brought, you brought cheers to my eyes, Patrick. I mean, what more do you want? <laughs> at, at that was great. Peril. Oh, so, it's so nice. At great peril. Let me read one more uh, piece here. The summit, <laughs> summit for Democracy. Um, haven't taken essential steps to reinforce democratic foundations of our country and inspire action to others. In, in the first year, the, the Biden administration is proposing a summit uh, to bring together the world's democracies to strengthen institutions, honestly confront the challenge of nations that are backsliding and form a common agenda. Now, this is, is beyond the US-EU relationship, uh, but there are a couple of uh, countries in the EU that uh, are fraying. And, and we, were, we were talking about uh, the topics of nationalism and, and uh, you know, we, we see what's going on in Hungary and Poland and, and so forth. Uh, any, any thoughts on uh, this summit for democracy and, and where, where we are headed uh, and what, what we can expect to see in the Biden administration? Bad idea. To jump in, I'll jump in. Uh, my, Go ahead, I Dave. have felt in a long time that a major effort this is all before Mr. Trump came in and changed the entire equation on how he, the world conducts itself in a, in a diplomatic sense. But a, a rough alliance of, of democratic uh, capitalistic powers to sort of short jump the United Nations as a whole institution. I mean, the United Nations is, a, I, I'm a believer and we need it, but it is not functional in the sense that it cannot set the agenda for the world. So uh, the idea of getting together with like-minded uh, powers, I think is a good one. What will come out of that, however, will probably be the United States having to take the lead and whatever gonna get done is gonna be done because the United States is in the leadership role and at the head of the table. Okay, let's uh, roll in a question from Professor Tom Schwartz. Uh, uh, Vanderbilt, who uh, asks, uh, he makes the observation that uh, Obama's national security advisor, Ben Rhodes, talked about the foreign policy establishment as, 
quote, the blob, unquote, and dislike what was perceived as its traditional approach to US foreign policy. Uh, Professor Schwartz asked, does Biden share in that suspicion of the blob or is he going to act in a more traditional way? And where should we look for new thinking on foreign policy in the Biden administration? Well, Biden is the blob. <laughs> and you're not going to see Mr. Rhodes in the Biden administration. I will predict that. Uh, the, uh, he's, still doing, he's still doing his podcast. I think he's, he's uh, satisfied with that. All the, uh, all the hugging and kissing going on between Obama and Biden uh, sort of uh, camouflage a bit the fact that they really didn't agree very much on foreign policy. And uh, uh, Obama is essentially a, a, a retreatist, if that's a, if that's a word. He's wanted to pull America out of the world and uh, instead govern by, by um, inspiring speeches. I once did TV commentary on a speech that he gave in Berlin in 2013, in which he listed 43 areas. I counted them. I put this in the article I sent you. 43 areas where Europe and the United States were going to work together. Never once did he mention NATO or the, Un or the European Union, which meant that he totally misunderstood what Europe was all about. At the same time, I did another TV commentary in 19, uh, 2008, when he was running for president, where 250,000 people got together to listen to him speak in the center of Berlin. The whole city was filled with people. Right. And uh, he, he motivated people tremendously, but then never followed up. And that's the problem. Foreign policy is my favorite secretary of state that I worked for was George Schultz. And he said, foreign policy is tending the garden. You got to go out every morning and cut the grass and water the flowers. And uh, that's what America, we call that in diplomacy, we call that statecraft. And that's what America has been forgetting a bit over the last years. And uh, one of the reasons I'm enthusiastic about Joe Biden is that he understands statecraft. I know him quite well. He was always doing foreign policy. So I was always trying to convince him of something or other. And uh, he knows about statecraft. And that's one of the reasons I think he's going to be successful. Yeah, and in the Navy, we call it leadership by walking around. If you. Uh, that's right. That's if you, nothing if you better get, than that. If you don't get seen every day, then uh, bad things happen. Um, last uh, piece on, on Europe uh, Joe Biden has made no bones about his uh, disdain for Brexit and specifically the, uh, the risk to the Good Friday Agreement that uh, opened up the uh, Northern Ireland, Republic of Ireland border. And now he's concerned about the risk of that being shut uh, or at least uh, monitored as a condition of Brexit where the European Union establishes a customs line uh, between the, the North and the Republic. Um, and, and he has mentioned that the free trade agreement with uh, the UK uh, could be could suffer from um, that uh, that problem in, in the Republic. Uh, any comments on Brexit, the UK, uh, the US-UK relationship, anything that uh, we should be looking forward to or prepared to, to see happen in the US-UK relationship, whether it's uh, dealing with Brexit or uh, any impact on what's been called the special relationship? 
Well, um, Brexit is essentially the same phenomena as Trump. In other words, it revealed a great dissatisfaction among normal working British people about their own political establishment and by extension, Europe. Um, I'm not Irish, but I am Celtic. I'm from, my grandparents were born in Cornwall and uh, it's a nice little part of, of, of England. Cornwall over the past 10 years has received more subsidies from the European Union than any part of the United Kingdom. And they built up a tremendous digital industry on that basis. They voted 65% in favor of Brexit. There is in other words, no logic to it. And um, right. it's, a, it's, a, it's a very uh, bad uh, defeat for Europe to lose its, I would say second most important member, some of French Francophiles would disagree with me, but I would say that the UK was the second most important member of the European Union after Germany. Uh, it's a great defeat for them. And it's a very bad thing for us. It's a very bad thing for Europe. But uh, I, I quote this 65% from Cornwall every once in a while because it shows that this vote had nothing to do with reason. It had to do with people getting fed up, maybe with the blob that Mr. Rhodes talks about. And uh, it's going to be very hard to put it back together. I think it's what's what's happening is is well. The fact is the the vote was bad enough, but the people who are carrying it out are even worse. So uh, what uh, what comes of that is going to be very very difficult to understand. Well, John, you know, go sorry, ahead, Brick. Go ahead, Pat. Sorry. No, no. Go ahead, Brick. I was just kind of, John, I'd like to ask you a question if it's okay, uh, related to Brexit and the EU in general and the group as a whole. Because of course the EU started out uh, many, many years ago as a free trade block, but uh, politicians at the sort of global European level have, in my mind at least, over the last 20 years gone about centralizing power in non-economic areas and immigration being probably the most publicized example. And that that trend has had far from majority support, it seems to me, among Europeans in general, that trend of ceding such kind of non-economic power to a supra-European government. And, and my question is, do you think, one, do you agree with that? And two, do you think that that is uh, a significant cause of this rising political populism in the Eastern European states and, and even in some of the Western European states, part, political party by political party? And lastly, if that's the case, how can the U.S. influence that going forward? How could a Biden administration influence that? Well, I'll start with your last question. Uh, still today, and for another 48 days, whatever it is, we have a president who doesn't try and change it, who supports it. So uh, the message that we've been sending to Europe over the past four years has been, uh, been a divisive one. Uh, and uh, he, you know, supported, uh, considered himself to be close supporters of Orban and the Polish government who are considered to be dangerous for, by the rest of the Europeans. So again, I'll go back to Joe Biden, just by saying, here I am, I'm your friend, I'm gonna be positive about you and everything is gonna make a lot of, lot of difference. It's just that what's coming ahead is more important. Um, the European Union is at a crossroads now. It needs a new narrative. The narrative which came out of the 1950s or the ones that came out of 1990 after the end of the Cold War 
we're building a federal state here and it's going to be a world power just doesn't function. Europe is never going to be a federal state. At the moment, its power in the world is declining rapidly. It needs really a new narrative about who it is and what its relations with the United States are. And that what I hope that Joe Biden can help them do it by being what they need right now is a sympathetic ear in Washington. And as I mentioned before, that's going to be sometimes hard because they're taking positions on things which are politically very um, unpopular here in the United States. So, but still Joe Biden is, I think gonna be a sympathetic year. And I think probably that's the best role he can play right now is just to let them evolve into whatever they're evolving into. Um, I've spent so many years in Germany that I have a very focused idea about Germany, but Germany is, is, has become the third most important country in the world without question. It is the, the digital hub, not because it has a big digital industry, which it doesn't, but because it's the hub of Europe and it's the only European country which also has a relationship with Russia and with China. And so Germany is gonna become the, the real center of this. And again, Biden knows Germany and cares a lot about Germany. So, but it's gonna mean that the whole narrative is gonna to have to change. And Rick, you're very right about this. And in the end, and this is where we were talking earlier, the only force which can really affect this positively is the United States. And I, will we be willing to do that? I don't know. We're preoccupied with China right now. I understand why it's important. Will we be willing to do it? I just don't know. It's, a, it's gonna be a question of leadership. Well, speaking about in the end, we've uh, run the clock out here and, and uh, not only have we got, uh, gotten east of uh, Istanbul, I don't think we've uh, made it uh, to Sarajevo. Um, but we uh, made it to the Eastern time zone. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're still in, uh, in, in Germany and, and uh, the West. Uh, what a great conversation. And, and we are fortunate that we have uh, more episodes of the Global News Review coming up. Uh, next week, we, we will continue this conversation. And I'll ask for, uh, for final comments here and, and thank everybody. Uh, but we, uh, we will continue the conversation. Uh, we'll, we won't miss uh, a beat. We'll take up the issues of the Middle East. We still have uh, great power uh, competition to talk about, Russia, China, uh, and so forth. What's going on in North Korea, Afghanistan, Southeast Asia. Uh, it's a big world out there. The Biden administration has, uh, has a lot on its plate. Uh, as I mentioned, the, the world has not hit the pause button. Um, gentlemen, any uh, any closing comments? Dick? Mute here first. Um, America is back. What it's going to do and how it's going to do, I agree very much with John in the, in the sense that to have an effective foreign policy, you need to first have an effective internal policy and the, and the country needs to agree on what it is that we're about, what kind of role we want to play in the world, how we go about doing that. And that's going to evolve. I think it's very clear that the people that uh, President-elect Biden is appointing are multilateralists. They want to engage the world and they want America to be back at the table. But there are a lot of countervailing forces that are out there and uh, it's going to be an interesting few years. I guess, Pat, I'll just throw out there. My ending comment would be that uh, the Trump administration, and we'll see the Biden administration, I think is a good example of how the personality of our diplomacy matters. And I think back to the 
George H.W. Bush administration when the Soviet Union is falling apart and he and his national security advisor Scowcroft and Secretary of State Baker were trying very hard not to gloat and to handle this from a personality standpoint in a way that uh, that made the transition from world power to uh, uh, a broken up empire uh, go more easily. And uh, with the Trump administration, in my opinion, again, we had a president who uh, was uncontrollable in his uh, egotistical like comments. And I think that that, uh, even where his policies were correct, I think his style uh, hurt our diplomatic efforts tremendously and style counts. And I think that's a real, uh, uh, I think that's a real good example of how style counts in our diplomatic relations. And I think Biden, the Biden administration will bring us back to a more uh, thoughtful stylistic approach, policies aside. I agree with that completely. Um, not every idea that Trump had was bad. He, in fact, sensed what I was talking about before, that America was getting frustrated with its world role. He sensed it much better than the Democrats did. And so we, we uh, for all of his weaknesses, which I sh might reject as much as anybody, we should not forget the, some of the lessons that come from his period, which are that America cannot continue doing its leadership on the same basis as it did for the first 50 years after the, cold, after the end of World War II. And uh, I think that you're gonna see inside the Democratic Party a big fight about this because we haven't talked about the uh, Bernie Sanders forces yet, but there is a big part of the Democratic Party that doesn't want any active foreign policy at all. And they consider foreign policy to be, to be almost a, uh, a capitalist trick. And so it's, it's going to be difficult for Biden to uh, put all these pieces even inside his own party together, let alone in the United States. Well, that's terrific. Uh, thank you, uh, gentlemen, for a very interesting uh, conversation about the, uh, the Biden administration, the national security and foreign policy team that's coming on board. And uh, uh, Ambassador Kornblum, I'm waiting for our uh, global news review after dark so you can share your, your adult uh, comments about uh, this or that personality. But yeah, we'll have to go on, the, uh, on some other Facebook channel too. <laughs> <laughs> but this has uh, been a great opening to our review of 2021, the path ahead for US foreign policy. And we will be back on uh, next week, uh, Wednesday afternoon, 1 p.m. Uh, Ambassador Kornblum, uh, please uh, come join us whenever you, uh, you have time. We, we'd love to uh, include you in our conversation. Ambassador Dick Bowers. Yes, sir. Ambassador Dick Bowers, Dr. Breck Walker, as always, uh, enjoyed the time spent with y'all. Everybody uh, be well. Thanks again.